Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, a passage we should all be familiar with. I have preached from it on multiple occasions. In fact, over six years ago, first time we ever met, it was the Sunday before Christmas of 2014. Uh, This was the passage uh, we looked at. And uh, little did I know from what I've been told, someone had like preached on it the week or two before or something like that. So... Um, and uh, maybe another day I'll tell you why I chose that passage. It was actually thanks to uh, the church I was serving at as an interim pastor encouraged me to do this passage. So, so being that we've looked at it before, I, I want to tweak things just a little bit, but we still want to do faithful exegesis of it. So Luke 15, we want to look at verses 11 to 32. And with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. Remember, we looked at the first two parables last Sunday evening, and we conclude with the third parable of this chapter today. The evangelist Luke, not to be confused with Mark, says under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that has come to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, many days later, the younger, younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he spent everything, severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He arose, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. He was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and treated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When the son of yours came... Who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. He said to, his, said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Go, Lord, prayer. Father, we ask you to open our hearts, we would receive your word, our mind, that we would understand it. Our eyes that we would see your glory, our ears that we would hear, hear and heed your word, our mouth that we would speak the truth of the hope in the gospel, on our hands and our feet, that we will go in obedience and grow in holiness. This is your work. We are in this text. May you show it to us, and may we respond accordingly. May I decrease so that you may increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. An artist by the name of Timothy Paulson was out yard sailing, and he found an old painting that was, that was being sold for $7. He went and bought the painting, took it home. Now, this isn't one of those stories that you think, oh, he bought a painting for $7. 
And come to find out it's worth $7 million. That's, that's not what the story is. The painting was only worth $7. Had he turned around and tried to sell it, he probably would have gotten $7. The painting really wasn't worth much. But he saw something in that painting. He wanted to prove a point. So he took it home to his studio and, and he, he removed the frame and everything. Just, just the canvas and what's left of the painting. He, he redid it. Timothy Paulson is an abstract artist, like my least favorite art, other than here's a blank canvas. Make it whatever you want, right? Have I told you the joke I've made? I'd like to do a church office video where we have an empty frame, put it on one of our walls that's white, and make, you don't care. Anyways, uh, he's an abstract artist. So he took that old $7 painting. He did his own form of art on it. He took it to, to his, his studio where people would come and, and buy his paintings. Now, most of his paintings, he would sell around a mere $25,000, I like to pretend like that's just a little bit of money, so indulge me if you will. But this painting was different. This painting was, was special. In his little uh, shop there, he, he had, a, had a room in, in the back. It was a special room. It was where his best paintings were. And so he took this $7 yard sale painting that he had fixed up and transformed. He, he took it to his room and he, he, he organized the lights in a certain way so, so that it, it, would, it would enhance the painting itself. And, and he, he put a, a little a border in front of it so, so you couldn't get too close to it, you know, for COVID reasons, no doubt. And, and, and he, he made that this was the only painting in this extra room. And, and he sold it not for $25,000, but for $1 million. And before long, Someone came and bought what was originally a $7 canvas, a $7 work of art, was now worth a million dollars. What changed? What is this Timothy Paulson's point? What changed was that it was the artist who transformed it. And because it was the work of the artist, what was once at the bottom of a yard sale was now prominent sold for riches. In a nutshell, that is what this lesson of the prodigal son is all about. In fact, we see the story is really in three parts, but for our purposes, we'll break it down into two parts. And the first part is the story of the prodigal son. Usually, this is where we isolate the story. We don't care so much about the other son. Uh, he's, he's a bratty boy anyways. But this part, we, we, we really do pay attention to it. And remember what we said last week about the first two parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin. All of these parables follow the same pattern. So you have the same story, essentially, in all four of, of these stories. And this is lost, seek, discover, rejoice. So a shepherd lost a sheep, went and discovered the, the or sought out the sheep, discovered the sheep, rejoiced with his friends. A, a woman uh, lost a coin, sought for the coin, discovered the coin, rejoiced with her friends. So too, what we see here is, is the same story. Verses 11 to 16 is the story of the lost son. First, the son is, is lost. Now, in order for us to appreciate the story, we, we have to understand and put ourselves into a shame, and, a shame and honor culture. Now, I will say that that is a foreign concept to us. We don't think in those terms. We are starting to think more in those terms. The more pagan our religion gets with woke religion, the more shame and honor comes. So, so, so you will be shamed into obedience. We get this. You, you understand this, right? So you, you got to sit through the diversity trainings. You, you've got to go back on your old tweets. You, you, why? Because you're being shamed into thinking about uh, thinking things a certain way. We are becoming this shame-honor society. But nevertheless, this, this is embedded in this society. And so what we see both is the shame of the son and the shame of 
the father. First, the shame of the son. The son comes up and says, hey, dad, I want my inheritance. Now, no, you're, you're, you're smart people, uh, even for state employees. And you know that in order for you to get an inheritance, something first must happen. Someone's got to die. We understand even today that if you went up to, to, to someone and said, I want uh, what is my, my inheritance, you are essentially asking that person to hurry up and die. So here comes the son going up to his father saying, Dad, I, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. Will you just die and give me my money? And to make matters worse, as if that wasn't bad enough, what does he do with the money? He squanders it. This is what the term prodigal means. He, he, he doesn't invest it. Like, like honestly, if, if he had a son or daughter coming to you and said, Dad, Mom, here's the deal. I would like to invest in this business that I'm starting. I would like to, to I have a plan here that, that with a little bit of starter money, I really believe that with enough hard work and ingenuity, I can accomplish these things. I'm willing to bet most parents would say, oh, that, that, okay, here is part of your inheritance. You're all your inheritance is all you're going to get. I, I, think, I think we can be reasonable with some of that even today. But what does this prodigal do? He's very open and honest. Dad, I'm waiting for you to die so that I can just go live however I want uh, and, and pretend like you never existed. Get away from here and just waste all of it. So wasteful is this prodigal son. He goes and lives with the Gentiles. Yuck, right? I mean, it's, it's, in, in modern lingo, it's like he, he went up and hung out with the Yankees, right? I mean, you just, you just yuck. You don't want to go up north. People are weird. Right? No, he, he goes to the Gentiles. These people were dirty. They were shameful. They were guilty. They, they were not the people of God. He has left everything behind. In fact, to make it even worse, he settles to live among pigs. So much so that he, he would be willing to eat their food, something he cannot do. Well, that, that is certainly a lot of shame for, for one young man. But what about the shame of the father? Not only does the son bring shame to his father, which was a huge, huge no-no. You do not do that in a shame-honor culture. But the father allows his son to bring him shame. You're reading this story, and Jesus tells this story to his first audience. They're all wanting to know, when will the father slap his son? And don't go up to dad and say, dad, I wish you were dead. No, no, not without defending your honor. The father doesn't do any of this. and In fact, he not only tolerates such defiance, he gives into it. He gives him the inheritance, lets him walk out the door. What great shame this is. And yet what happens to the prodigal is, is exactly what is predictable. Eventually, and something our government hasn't learned, eventually you run out of someone else's money. If you don't invest, if you don't work, you're going to run out of money. It doesn't matter how much you have. You're going to run out of money. Virtually every athlete, a professional athlete and rock star has learned this the hard way. Eventually, you run out of money. And so he reaches a rock bottom here, verses 17 and 19. And in that rock bottom, he, he comes to his senses, right? You, you see it there for, for us here. It says, uh, he came to himself. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger, right? That's, that's a kind of Kind of obvious point, isn't it? There's something, something I've learned over the years. Everyone has their own rock bottom. That church member taught me that, that everyone has their own rock bottom. I learned this about three years ago. Um, I stood on a, on a scale, and I saw a number I never thought I would ever see. Right? And, and so that was my rock bottom. It was like I was carrying too many rocks, I guess you can say, right? And I said, no, th th this has to change, right? And, and a few months later, I was working to, to lose 
I lost about 20 pounds then. Uh, but for some people, it's, it's, it's a different rock bottom. Uh, they have to get to a certain point. So some are lower than others, but still, we all have our rock bottom. This is his rock bottom. A Jewish boy living among the Gentiles feeding pigs. Maybe your rock bottom wouldn't have gotten that far. Maybe it would have gotten farther. I don't know. But this is his rock bottom. It finally clicks. Why am I starving when I can have food to the full if I just go back home? Now, of course, going back home is going to be a humbling reality, isn't it? It's going to be very humble to, to do that. And that is something he, he must decide. Does he want to starve to death or does he want to swallow his pride? And here he decides to swallow his pride. And notice what he does here is, is, is he, he works on his speech he's going to give his dad. Right? And there's two parts of this speech. The first is in verse 18. That is confession. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's confession. Notice here, confession is not, well, dad, had you taught me how to invest, I wouldn't have been in this mess. That's not confession. His confession is, I am guilty. I am in the wrong. No one made me do this. It's no one else's responsibility. It is my fault. Let me give you some advice. If you are getting an example of what confession looks like from a politician in a scandal, you're going to the wrong source. This is a good example of one. Father, I have sinned against you and I have sinned against God. I am in the guilt. I am the one that has brought great shame. And then notice what he does in the rest of verse 19. Here is he, he seeks to make a restitution. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You see the similarity with the parable we saw this morning. There you remember that, that the first servant realizes he can never pay it back. The other servant in debt realizes, look, I've, I've got, say, six months of debt here. It's a lot of money for a servant, but it's doable. If you give me enough time, I, can, I will work hard. I will work overtime to see to it that you are paid back. And then this is what, what, what the son is doing. Now, think about the logic here. There's a real problem here. Can this son, as a servant, pay this off? Let me think about it. If you received an inheritance from a very rich entrepreneur, pick your favorite, and it's your shared inheritance with one other sibling. So you're getting half of the estate. Can you now, as a minimum wage employee working at McDonald's, pay it back? No, you can't. You can't. And that's part of the problem of this text, isn't it? It's much like that first servant that we saw this morning. Despite how hard he may work, no matter how hard he may try, he will never be able to pay back his family. However, what we see here is you and I are probably all, all in agreement. One, he needs to confess what he did was wrong. Secondly, he needs to pay it back. He's essentially stolen from his father. And so even the first readers would have, would have understood this. He robbed his father, shamed his family, squandered his position as a son. Justice demands restitution. Well, so, so we go back from, from lost to, uh, to seeking. And so now we see the seeking part of the story. Now, you tell me, which one is more true? The father lost his son or the son lost his father? In the story, which one is true? Or we could put it this way. Who seeks who? Does the father seek the son or does the son seek the father? This was sticking out to me as I was reading it this week, especially when you follow this, this, this outline. Now think about it. The sheep want, or the sheep must be found. The coin must be found. 
The prodigal must be found. And the father must want to be found. I think it's, I think it's, it's all of the above, isn't it? It isn't just that the, the, the son has lost a father. That's what he realizes. That what he's really lost is a father who will provide for him and love him. All the things that he's not getting in the Gentile world. At the same time, the father has really lost something. Someone he really loves. And so what we see is when the son comes to his senses, he's seeking the father. He's seeking what it is he has lost. At the same time, the father doesn't do what we would expect him to do. We would expect him and his family to have a funeral for his lost son. They would essentially bury an empty casket, say, he is dead to us forever and ever. But instead, this father doesn't hold an, an, an empty, uh, doesn't bury an empty casket. Rather, he, he sets his plate at, out every evening for dinner, waiting for him to return. He looks out. The last thing he does every day is the sun is setting. He looks out. Maybe today's the day my boy will return. He, he gets up early. What does he do? Maybe today is the day my boy will return. You see, it is both the son is seeking the father and the father is seeking the son. In fact, we see that in verse 20, doesn't we? And he arose and, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The language here is quite beautiful. But we need to know the amount of shame that is in this account. We love it because we read it as Americans, but, but you need to read it as first century Jews. Remember, it was shameful for what the son did. You never bring shame upon yourself, upon your family, or upon your community. And this boy has done all of that. It is equally shameful that the father tolerated it in his son. Now notice what happens. The son is, is wising up. He's going to return. Now, what's supposed to happen is he, he is going to enter into the village and everyone's going to get word of it, right? The, the, the village gossiper is going to get wind six miles out that he's returning. Somehow, that gossipers always find out somehow, and, and, and they're going to start spreading the word. And what are they going to do? They're going to hold a parade for the boy. Not a good parade. No, no, this is going to be a bad parade. He's going to enter through the village and he's going to be stopped. And, and, and they're going to ask, what do you want from here? You ain't from around here. You're not welcome here. You know what you've done. You know, you know all this sort of stuff. And then eventually he'll enter into it. And with each house he passes, with each front yard he goes by, what is he getting? Shouts of, of anger. Shouts of shame. Who do you think you are? Your, your kind isn't welcome here. You left and we hope you never return. Your father will never bring you back. You are a nobody. You are unworthy of love. You, you left us and we've left you. And so typically, such a son, would, son would, would, would take upon himself all of this shame as he's approaching his father's front door. At which point, he would, he would knock and he would beg, and what would he get from his father? Silence. Why? Because this shameful son has brought shame upon his family and has brought shame upon his community. He knew not to do any of this. He knew what would happen to him. But none of that is what happens in the story. What happens in the story? The father is always looking out. You can see him out in the fields, can't you? You can see him with, with, with the other workers, just, just looking up every few minutes. Maybe, maybe, maybe now, maybe now I can see his silhouette. Maybe now I can see him coming. And then the moment comes and, and, the, and the father does see his son. And the father knows what is awaiting his son. The father knows how he is wasted and squandered and, as, as a prodigal. He knows all this sort of stuff. But what does the father do? He runs. Now you need to know, Noblemen don't run. You don't run because you run the risk of exposing yourself. And that brings shame upon yourself. This father doesn't care. He takes off running. He runs to the village to meet his son at the gate. And in so doing, what happens? 
All the shame from that community that was reserved for the son is now being heaped upon the father. Who do you think you are? No wonder your son acts the way he does. You're a shameful person. You bring dishonor to our community. You, you shouldn't act like that. Didn't your parents raise you better than that? And to make it worse, he, he greets his son. Remember, what, what does this son smell like? I, I don't know much about pig farming, but I know enough to know you need a shower. And he can't afford a shower. He smells like Gentiles. He smells like unclean animals. He smells like a prodigal. He smells like one who is lost, yet has been found. What does the father do? He embraces him. He kisses him. He loves on him. In fact, the language is, is striking there at the end of verse 20. Look at it again. It, it says that um, he ran and embraced him and kissed him. This, 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 is, this, this, this is lavish love. This is the sort of love that you, 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 wouldn't, you wouldn't expect a father to give his son at this time. Maybe you grew up in, in that sort of society where, where fathers didn't show a lot of affection. I mean, this, this is that to, to, to the extreme. Fathers didn't do this. That's what mothers were for. Fathers didn't do this, but this father does. He lavishes love upon him. He, he kisses his face. Why? Because he, he's been seeking his son. He's been longing for this moment, and he can't help himself. So starting in verse 21, we get the discovery. Having returned home, the, the son delivers his rehearsed confession. Now, and we need to look at it again. Now, remember, what, what is this confession, right? It's got two parts. It's got confession and restitution. The confession is there in verse 21. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, period. And in verse 22, the father speaks. Something's missing. You see what's missing? He's got the confession part verbatim, right? He'd been practicing all those miles. He left out the restitution part. Make me as one of your hired servants, and I'll pay you back. The father doesn't let him finish. Why? Well, if, if you've been following the parables, you know the answer. The answer is it would be an insult to grace. The father loves the son despite what the son owes him, despite what the son has done. And the fact he's returned home is sufficient for the father. In fact, before the son can do any of this, and notice what, what, the, what the father does, verse 22. He said to his servants, bring quickly. Now notice the servants is what the son wants to become. So as the son, he would be serving his brother once, once he adopts that. But no, that, is, that isn't good enough here. No, no, he must, he, he's going to stay a son. And he says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Again, that's details we, we, we don't really get, right? What we would do today is we'd say, look, we've still got your old bedroom just the way you left it. That's the best example I can think of. And so, so the ring, the, the robe, all of this is signs of sonship. The father is adopting his own son. Remember, to everyone else, he was no longer uh, the, the child of, of this father. He was an outcast. He was as good as dead. He's like one of the Gentiles. He chose the Gentiles over his own family. But to this father, having returned home, ha having been lost and is now is found, he in his eyes is his own son. This is equivalent of the shepherd laying the lamb across his shoulders. And again, why would the father do any of this? What has he done to deserve it? And the answer, of course, is nothing. Because that is what grace is. 
So the undying love of the Father was greater than the deep and abiding wickedness of the Son. That is grace. And this leads, of course, to rejoice. Verses 23 and 24. Not only did he, did he clothe his son in, in sonship, he says, kill the fatted calf, kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. Remember the funeral. He was alive again. He was lost and is found. He celebrated. Of course, the parallels are obvious. Just as the shepherd celebrates with his friends and the uh, woman celebrates with her gal friend, so too the father must rejoice. And think about it, that, that, that you had a funeral and if the son comes back, we call this a resurrection. No wonder they celebrated. What would your reaction be if someone you deeply loved died and you met him again? I think your whole world would stop and you would celebrate. If only the story ended there, right? I mean, no, this is a good story. I mean, this is a good story. This is a good one. But Jesus had to ruin it for us because there's more to it. So we go from the prodigal son to the pharisaical son. And again, it follows the same trajectory. Lost, seek, discover, rejoice. The loss of the second son is in verses 25, 20. I want to spend more time on that. I've already spent more time intended. You're not getting out early tonight. I'm just going to warn you right there. Verse 25, we get the loss. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house and heard music dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father's killed the fat calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Now, for most of us, the return of the prodigal was, would be good news. As a general rule, we get it. If someone were to go missing, a young child go missing in our community, and that child is found three days later, the whole community is going to celebrate. Because in reality, the whole community is going to help find the child. We, we, we get this. But all of that overlooks the reaction of the brother. And we can spend all day about why this is. We, but we would expect him to join his father in rejoicing the return of his brother. That, that's, that's the natural thing that we would expect. Then, of course, the prodigal, if the prodigal mimics the tax collectors and sinners that we saw in verses 1 and 2, this son mimics the Pharisees. Why? Well, I like to call him the Pharisaical son. And it also starts with a P, so it alliterates with the prodigal. That's the real reason. Notice what we have here with the Pharisaical son. First of all, he is outside the celebration. You see that? He's out in the field. Notice, in fact, we could put it this way. The prodigal is out in the far country. The pharisaical son is out in the far field. What you need to see here is what we have is the same story told twice with two very different endings. One leaves and doesn't want to be home. The other leaves and doesn't want to be home. And we see him lost on the outside. He refuses to join in the celebration. Now, it's odd in this culture to find a nobleman, the son of a nobleman, who will inherit his father's property and land because he is the older brother, so he would inherit more and have more possession. It's odd that we would find him in the field. If it helps, think of him as a state employee, okay? He doesn't actually work. No, but what they do, and I'm making jokes, of course, is he supervises the servants. Call him a director, or if you will. Right? He, he's, he's not in charge of, 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 
uh, of planting seed and, and, and toiling in the field. It's not his job. His job is to supervise. And so it is odd that we find the older brother out in the field and not in the home. So that is odd that we see that. Uh, in fact, we can even add to that. The primary job of the older brother, not primary job, but one of the jobs of the older brother is it's his job to plan parties. And here is the biggest party the family has ever thrown. Where is he? As far away as he can go. Out in the field with the servants. After all, remember, his brother wanted to become one of the servants. And the older brother thinks that's what his, his younger brother should become. This is where people like that belong. And he is going to supervise them, but he's not going to go in there and celebrate. And so he is lost. And we need to see him as a lost son here, much in the same way the prodigal was. But we also see the seeking of the father here. It's at the, it's at the end of there, verse 28. Uh, his father came out and entreated him. Now, now notice there, this is the difference between the Pharisaical and the prodigal son. Remember, we asked, who is seeking who? Is it the son seeking the father or the father seeking the son? The answer is both. That, that the prodigal son came, came to his senses and says, why am I starving to death when I can have an abundance of food at, at dad's house? But I must swallow my pride. This son refuses to come in and eat the, eat the cheeseburgers and steaks that is being offered him inside. Because he hasn't come to his senses. So what we see is only the father is seeking the son. The son's not seeking the father. Because remember, he sent servants to go figure out what is going on there. So the father now goes out into the field, out to find the son, and in pursuit of him. Now, granted, the, the son understood the loss of the father. If you put yourself in the son's shoes, you can imagine what it would have been like to be the only son left of this nobleman. And to grieve with his father. His father clearly loves his boys. And what, 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 how difficult that would have been. And, and the anger that would have left him when the prodigal returns. And to act like nothing had ever happened. But at the same time, we, we might be able to sympathize with, with his anger. But how can we not celebrate his return? How, how, how can he not do that? If this brother really loved his father, would he not celebrate with him? Isn't that, isn't that the general question of this entire chapter? Should we not celebrate the things that God celebrates? Should the brother not celebrate what his father celebrates? Should not love triumph over his own hurt? Well, despite that, we get in verse 29. He answered his father, look, now, I don't know how you were raised. There were a few right ways to speak to my parents. There were an abundance of wrong ways to speak to my parents. We made sure we always spoke the right way to my parents. My parents believed in corporal punishment, right? And uh, they really believed it. Uh, I'll just say that. You do not disrespect your parents, right? I was raised that way, right? Uh, Dad always said, you don't hit girls. Don't disrespect your parents and, and, the, and, and, and your elders, right? That, that was drilled in us. So if mom, if mom and dad said, son, go clean your room, I said, look here, right? I would not finish that sentence. Their reflexes are still fast enough that I would not be able to finish that sentence to this day. And that's exactly what he says. Now notice, when the prodigal returns, how does he address his father? With respect. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. How does the Pharisaical respond? Look here, old man. Look here. 
He doesn't love his father. We, 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 we should see him as equally lost as, as, as anyone. And again, what should we expect? We should expect the father to respond with anger. You do not speak to me like that son, but he doesn't. He patiently listens and responds to his son in love. And so, so we get the rest of it there in, in, in verse 29. Look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, again, there was a right way to speak to your parents and a lot of wrong ways. There were a number of, of, of appropriate ways to speak of your brothers and sisters, and there were many wrong ways. You would never say to your parents, that boy of yours, when speaking of your own brother or sister. Right? You just wouldn't do it. He refuses to show respect to his father. He refuses to show any, any honor or respect to his own brother. He, he is full of anger. But notice, what is his concern? His own resume. I've worked hard, I'm a good person, I've kept all the rules. And notice that his obedience is not rooted in love, but in pride. He has something to gain in following the rules. The pharisaical son wants what the prodigal son wanted. He wants his father's inheritance, he wants to be his own man, he wants to set up his own kingdom. The difference is the prodigal went about that in a very public way. And so he, he garnered the shame of everyone. The pharisaical son goes about it in a private way, and everyone applauds because what they see is on the outside, and that's good enough for the average man. Doesn't this sound familiar today? You would grow up in the church where this was the way things were run. I've grown up in the church. It was a struggle to welcome in prodigals, but we'd celebrate a lot of Pharisees because at least they tithed. Well, that leads to the discovery. Verses 31 and 32. Father said to him, son, notice the respect he shows. You are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Can we just add this one other detail about what the Pharisee wants? Notice he wants to celebrate too. But he doesn't want to celebrate with his family. He doesn't want to celebrate with the father. Who does he want to celebrate with? His friends and only his friends. Does this sound like the Pharisees? They were cool with Jesus so long as he was one of them. He was not cool with Jesus so long as he was not. How many of us want God to be something he is not? And we will protest when we discover he will not bend to our wishes. But nevertheless, the Father speaks tenderly to him. Son, you're always with me and everything that's mine is yours. We understand this, right? When I go to my parents' house, I open the refrigerator without permission. Is, is that odd? This is how we, how we live. If, if I needed to spend the night at my parents' house, whatever reason, scared of the boogeyman or something, I would go to my parents' house. Now, I'm old enough, I'd send them a text or a call. Hey, I'm going to swing by. I've done that. You know, if, if I have to be in Northern Kentucky or somewhere else, I may say, hey, i got to get up early. I'm going to stop at your house. You know, I'll do that. But if I just showed up and say, Mom, Dad, I'm spending the night here. Or, Mom, Dad, I, I, need, I need a break. Mom, Dad, uh, I, 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 something's going on with the car. Mom, Dad, nobody's going to ask that. The kids don't, 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 don't come in, 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 in the house and, and say, can I open this drawer? Right? Yeah, what's mine is, is, is yours. Right? We, we get this. This is the way it works. But for some reason, he's, he's having, having to be reminded of it. The thing he wants, he, he already has. He just has to see that it is already his. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. This brother of yours was, was dead, and now he's alive. He's lost and is now is found. How, how, how can we not celebrate this sort of thing? 
But notice what's missing in the story. It's that fourth part, isn't it? Sheep gets lost. Shepherd seeks it. He discovers it and rejoices. Coin gets lost. Woman seeks it. She finds it after much search and celebrates. Son gets lost. The father seeks, finds him, and rejoices. And then another boy gets lost. Father seeks him out. He discovers him. And the story ends. And this is a terrible ending to a story. It's missing something, isn't it? In fact, if you were to break down the story, we broke it down into two parts for sake of simplicity, but it's really broken down into three parts. So you have Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. And what you'll find is each of these three acts have, have the same, same, same uh, amount of uh, the term is leaving me. Uh, same lines. It's not the term I'm looking for, but we'll just roll with it for now. Same basic uh, lines, right? And, and they match. Act 1 and Act 2 match. But Act 3 is missing one. Jesus tells it in such a way so that we may see the story is incomplete. By the way, this isn't unique in the Bible. The Bible does this occasionally, right? My favorite example is the end of Jonah. You know how Jonah ends, right? Yes, he gets swallowed by a big sea monster. He gets spit out, uh, which is cool imagery. He preaches a, a single verse uh, a sermon, and everyone gets saved. You'll never hear me do that. And then, but everyone gets saved. You remember, what was it Jonah once in the last chapter? He goes up on the hill, and he's waiting for God to smite Nineveh, right? Just smite him. But what does God do? He grants grace to them. They repented. He shows grace. That's what God does. Where there's repentance, there is grace. Right? Where, where, where there is confession, there is, for, there is forgiveness. This is the way God operates. And Jonah becomes a, a, a whiny middle school boy. You've met some of these kids, right? Uh, you know, their, their, their video game stops working or, 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 or uh, the phone they're too young to have, uh, the, the, the battery dies, something like that, right? And then they just become a, a whiny, whiny kid. And then that's what Jonah becomes. And you remember, God raises up, up the plant. He's like, good, I'm entitled to a little shade. God withers the plant. And he says, well, now I'd just rather die than to celebrate that they, they are alive. And you remember how it ends. Jonah 4 ends this way. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the right hand from their left and also much cattle. And that is the end of it. Aren't you willing to know what happens in the Jonah? Does Jonah say, Well, now that you tell me this, God, I, I get it. Forgive me for being as evil as them. For being as wicked as them. Forgive me. I, 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 or does Jonah just, just become stubborn, as, 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 as a lot of uh, men are, right? You know, I want my way and only my way, and I'm, I'm going to tweet about it in, in, in complaint. Right? Well, what happens at the end? We don't know. We don't know. It's, it's, it's missing. Other passages of the Bible do the same thing. But this is purposely like this, certainly, much like Jonah is. And then you notice here, it's, it's really almost like a question. Isn't it fitting we could see the Father asking? That we celebrate that your, your dead brother is now alive? Your, your lost brother has is, is been found? Your forgotten brother is, is here? Should, should we celebrate this? It's, it's like it's concluding with a, with, with a question. Now, I'm sure you've watched plenty of shows before that the season ends on a cliffhanger, and then you find out weeks later they cancel the show and you'll never know what happens. You get the same thing here. Did the pharisaical son listen? Listen to his father, come in and embrace it. Did the love of the father compel the, the, the older brother to, 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 to repent and come inside and, and to celebrate? 
Did, did a prodigal come out and plead with his brother? Did a prodigal make the same confession as, to, to his brother as he did to his father? What role does the prodigal play in this? What became of the two brothers? What happens between them? Was the family ever reconciled and reunited? My goodness, this is worse than watching an episode of Lost, isn't it? The two may have appreciated that reference. But of course, we, we've looked at this passage enough. You know how it ends, right? We've talked about this before. It's, it's not a mystery by now. It may have been a mystery first time we, we, we first met six years ago, but it shouldn't be a mystery now. I, I'd like to tell you how this ends. And I can, I can speak with certainty how it ends because I've, I've read the rest of the book. And I'm stealing this directly from John MacArthur, so give him credit. You know how it ends. There is the father pleading with the son. Will you not come inside and celebrate? You can hear the music starting to play. You, 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 you can smell the, the grills being, be, be being worked up with, with all this meat. And, and you can see servants running around and, and all this sort of stuff. And here is the father out in the field just pleading, will you not come in and celebrate? And eventually he turns around to walk inside. What does the older brother do? You know what it is. He bends over and he picks up the rock. A rock just laying there. And he beats his father over his head until he is dead. And there lets his body lie. How do we know this is the ending? If the prodigal son is a picture of the tax collectors and Pharisees in verses 1 and 2. And this son is a picture of the Pharisees. If they are complaining that Jesus would love those who are lost, seek those who are lost, raise those who are dead, we know what the Pharisees do to that father, don't we? We know what the Pharisees do to that shepherd, don't we? They'll nail him to a cross. And there leave him to hang. See, at the end of the day, that's the point of the parable. Jesus rejoices in the things that God rejoices in. And that brings the ire of the enemies of God. So, so far we've seen those far away from the kingdom of God drawn in because the Father seeks. Except the Pharisaical son. So Jesus is looking at his new audience. He's saying, would you? Lost brothers? Lost sisters? Will you too not repent? Will you too not confess? And rejoice with God himself. Remember, what, 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 is, what is the central question of this entire chapter? What is the source of your joy? Is it the things of God? Or is it the things of man? 